0: Getting people to do what you want without them realizing that it's your will and not theirs. There's a lot of AI applications for exactly that in the world today, and this is not exactly something that we get to speak about openly with many of our executive folks who might join us on the program. It's not exactly in anybody's business interest to speak about their subtle influence and or Jedi mind tricks. I don't consider companies to be malicious for doing what's in their best interest, but it certainly is kind of an insidious world of encouraging human behavior, and it's something that AI really permits for quite well. We speak this week with Dr. Charles Isbell, who's an MIT PhD, who teaches machine learning here at Georgia Tech, both online and in person. And Charles talks about the subtle world of influence in artificial intelligence. His sort of petri dish for influencing human behavior without them realizing it, is in the world of gaming. How do you get people to take the next action steps that you want them to take without just shutting off all the other actions? How do you coax a behavior without limiting someone's ability to do something else? Also, how do you get people to adopt your goals, to not just take the next step you want them to take, but to full blown go after what you ultimately want them to go after? How is this done in the gaming world, and then also, how is this potentially done in the business world. Dr. Isbell goes in-depth into how this is done in gaming and some of his thoughts about the implications this might have in industry, as well as what kinds of companies or what kinds of online ecosystems might be most conducive to influencing folks and getting them to adopt your goals and behaviors while thinking that they are your own. A curious topic for those interested in AI and ethics, and a very important topic for those interested in AI and marketing. I certainly enjoy this interview. I hope you do as well. Well, this is Dr. Charles Isbell here on AI and Industry. Dr. Isbell, I wanted to get first into this concept of influence. You're doing a lot of work on influence in gaming. People, I think, have a sense that the digital world is working towards influencing them in some sense. Mm -hmm. Certainly, in the gaming world, those who are the World of Warcraft players and whatnot know that this has to play a role in sort of how they explore the world. Talk a bit about how machine learning and reinforcement learning plays a role in getting people to sort of do what you want without maybe knowing it.
1: So that is the key question. So how do you get people to do what you want them to do in a way that they're not aware that you're getting them to do? I mean, that's what sort of influence is. The big thing that machine learning, reinforcement learning, and other techniques play in that space is what all of we get out of this kind of flavor of machine learning. And yeah, it's data. So what you really want is you want to figure out the minimum amount of data that you need to know about someone in order to be able to predict how they're going to behave both in the short term and in the long term. And we're influenced fits its way into that is you want to use techniques that are well understood about people in order to get them to not only take a particular action to do a particular behavior, but to adopt the goals that you actually have for them. Because once they adopt the goals that you have for them, then they will do whatever it is that you need them to do in order to accomplish those goals.
0: Yes, I think that's a critical distinction. Getting someone to take a next step is certainly important, but getting someone to adopt goals. And we only hear about this generally in very dystopian senses, right? Like, oh, well, you know, Mao got people to adopt goals. Wasn't that the worst? You know, and and clearly this isn't an explicitly malicious application, but there's clear value in business and governance and whatever else to sort of be able to do that in in a digital ecosystem, to get them to adopt goals. I think that's a critical distinction. Now you do this a bunch in gaming. What does this look like in gaming? You know, I don't know what particular games or variations thereof you're working in. What does it look like to sort of get someone to adopt a goal within sort of a gaming ecosystem, but really feel as though they volitionally picked it?
1: Right. So there are lots of good examples of positive goal adoption, right? So a really simple one would be something like, I want you to quit smoking. Getting people to quit smoking is hard, but getting them to, once people believe I really need to do this, they will often do the things they need to do or lose weight or any number of other things I should probably do to make my life better. In (laughs) games, what the way that plays itself out is- It's not a game like uh, Space Invaders or or Pac-Man. It's a long-term game that you're going to be engaged in over hours, perhaps played many, many, many times, right? The goal there would be, I'm as an author of one of these games, I want you to have a great experience. Let's take a really simple example, like I want to build a murder mystery, right? And you're going to play through this world and figure out who committed a murder. If I want to give you the sense of control, I have to give you this ability to explore. But if I give you this ability to explore, then you might find yourself not really having a murder mystery, right? The difference between a murder mystery and a horror film is just whether you know who killed you, how many people get killed, whether you're being chased. There's just a yeah, small, yeah, tiny yeah, little yeah. differences there. So in a game like that, an environment where I'm trying to get you to have a long-term investment in the experience – And to go down certain paths while still giving you some sense of control, their goal adoption is, well, I want to buy into the idea that it's a mystery, or I want to buy into the idea that trying to get to this quest in a game or or trying to build up a certain number of points is a good thing to do that will get me to something in the end, and that there's a particular set of those things are important. And those goals differ dramatically based upon what you're trying to do. But if I can just get you to adopt the idea that, yes, it makes sense for me to continue reading this or it makes sense for me to learn this new skill, then that's the kind of goal adoption that we're talking. And it's a means to an end. The end may be getting me to stay there. It may be getting me to enjoy myself. It may be getting me to learn something, maybe getting me to change my eating behavior, whatever. It doesn't really matter what it is, but
0: the means to the end is spending more time on something, learning something, that sort of thing. Got it. So if you do want someone within a game to explore a certain building because you know this is the next clue that you really think is going to get them hooked on on wanting to figure out whatever the further steps are or you want them to really read you know, a certain book that they might have found in this game under a bed somewhere. And and that's going to be a critical clue that you think will kind of keep them around and invested for a longer amount of time. What are the subtle nuances that are used in those gaming ecosystems to kind of, you know, encourage a step? When we were talking off mic, you had mentioned, well, one thing, if you want them to go through one of three doors, you lock the other two. Right, But then people feel like, Well, this isn't even really a game. It's like it's a foregone conclusion and I'm not even really having fun here. And you take away that volitional sense and people don't like it, right? But there's a way to encourage that volitional sense so thoroughly that you still get your job done while they're still enjoying themselves. You still maintain that objective. What does that look like in in real
1: life? There's sort of three ways you can do it. One is the way you mentioned it. I lock every door except the door I want you to go down. I don't let you drive off a cliff. That's called being on rails. You're just going to do what you're going to do. It's obvious after a while. You're not in control. It's no fun. Or it's fun. I mean, I guess some people that sort of thing yeah. is fun. But For most probably, people, I think they want to feel like they're in control. They want to be in control. The second thing is to change the environment a little bit so that you will do what I want you to do. So. I've got three doors here. I want you to go through door number one. So I'm going to have someone scream on the other side of door number one. Now, you may ignore that, but you probably will be curious and you'll do it. By the way, if you don't go through door number one and you go through door number two, depending upon the kind of game, I will rearrange the entire building so that door number two is door number one and it sort of works out. And you feel as if you had choice, but it actually didn't matter. But by the way, if I'm going to do something like that, it better be the case that if you do it again and you go through door number one this time instead of door number two, it doesn't look like it always sends you to the yeah. same place because that's the same now thing you're as breaking being on the rails. frame, yeah. right? Exactly. And so you have to think about replayability. You have to think about reusability. That I can't just make every door really secretly door number one, which is sometimes easy and sometimes hard. The third thing, mm-hmm. which I think is quite interesting, is it's difficult in the door example, but we can maybe expand the example a little bit. Is I'm going to get you to believe that a particular thing I want you to do is important. For your very own reasons. So I'll just take something that's not in computer science, something that we know from psychology, we know from marketing. There's this concept called scarcity. Most people know what that means, right? There's something I want you to have. You may not be interested in until you find out that it's going away. Uh, you know, everything's on sale until midnight tonight, suddenly this thing that you were never going to buy, maybe you're thinking about buying it. So if I can make something scarce, something seem valuable to you, you will decide that it's valuable. And what's important about that is not only will you decide that it's valuable, you'll decide that you came up with the idea of being valuable on your own. Even though you're obviously being manipulated, you may even be aware that you're being manipulated in some sense. But as anyone who's ever bought anything on sale knows, you kind of can't (laughs) help yourself, right? And that third kind of influence is actually the one that has the most likelihood to get people to do the things that you want them to do in a way that makes them feel like it's of their own volition. They're in control.
0: So I'm very familiar with this concept of scarcity. I think that I ran an e-commerce business that was kind of direct to consumer e-commerce business. And there were some brands that operated within our space that – You know, every offer was scarcity. You know, it was Mm -hmm. always like midnight tonight, this, midnight tonight, that for everything. And at some point, that grades on people. And so I'm sure there's a way to break the frame even with scarcity. But I think when it seems like, oh, scarcity just happened to pop up for this thing, you know, like when we were off, Mike used the Disney example. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, we've decided to make some more uh, Lion King DVDs, but you know, we've only made a certain amount. If it kind of seems like plausible that, that maybe like i don't know maybe they're only doing a certain size run and disney doesn't do that to me every time so maybe this time it really is then Mm -hmm. it it maintains that luster because like they don't always push the scarcity button this must mean it's really scarce right Mm -hmm. whether it is or not now i'm curious how does reinforcement learning machine learning play a role into those hot buttons the scarcity the social proof these sort of traditionally these marketing tools psychology marketing tools How does machine learning or reinforcement learning encourage those? Because, you know, you can do scarcity just by writing ends midnight tonight in a subject line. Mm -hmm. How do we get a little farther with the tech here?
1: Well, so the first trick is to remember what machine learning is. Machine learning is about data right? So I can now tune this to you. But what's particularly interesting about all these kinds of problems, and I think really, really make a lot of sense of why they're interesting to me as a researcher, why I think about it in terms of reinforcement learning is because it's not about the next thing I want you to do. It's not about, well, I'll put this in the subject line, I'll get you to buy this thing, and then I'm done with you. What you actually care about is the thing three weeks from now, a month from now, 15 steps from now. And the tools that we normally use, most people use for machine learning, are they're really about what's the next thing. And what we actually care about is what's the thing that is going to set you up to be a part of my ecosystem minutes and minutes from now. And that's where reinforcement learning comes in. Reinforcement learning is about delayed reward. It's about decisions I'm making that six weeks from now, six years from now, 10 years from now will matter. They're of the flavor. It makes no sense to go to college. Because it's going to cost me a lot of money and I could have a job. But if I do go to college, four years later, I will make three times the amount of money that I would have made otherwise. And so I should make this decision that looks bad now because it's going to pay off later down the line. That's what reinforcement learning is about. Getting a signal that's years away or months away or or, or whatever. And games have this structure. Ecosystems have this structure where I'm not just doing one thing and being done, but I'm doing many, many, many things that will eventually lead me somewhere. And so the
0: tools that we have in reinforcement learning are sort of the right ones for long-term decision making. Got it. Okay. Maybe guiding your decision as to when you would leverage scarcity or not, you know, kind of knowing when is that going to work for what kind of person? Maybe scarcity is a tool, but you would know when and how to pull it out to achieve your long-term objective because you've modeled enough similar persons and encouraged enough persons along a similar path. Is this right? And the
1: the Disney example I think is is quite instructive here. So Disney in 1985, right? Had VCRs or whatever was going on in 1985. I think we had VCRs in 1985. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> they had video cassettes that they could sell and they had to think about everyone as if they were blocked. Disney in 2017, Disney in 2018, Disney in 2025 knows about you. Disney knows about me and they know a lot of information about me so they can tailor it. That difference matters a lot in terms of being able to ask the question, now, do I sell this person, the Lion King? and get $20 today, or do I not sell the Lion King and wait another three weeks and then get $50 because I get them to buy into my subscription service?
0: Yeah. And is this the kind of person who if they purchase this thing with scarcity, is likely to take the subscription as an upsell? Or is this the kind of person who I should really cool off on the sale for another little bit until the subscription based on the way this person buys or whatnot? Is right.
1: That- Maybe this is the kind of person that's really into brand loyalty. And so I have to build loyalty first before I try to get something from them. Maybe they'll be more likely to forgive. It doesn't quite match with their interest. You have to sort of build those models up.
0: And it comes to a point where there's this sort of winner take all AI shebang. And I think in terms of selling things on the internet, there's a company that does that now uh, that we're reasonably well familiar with. (laughs) If you collect enough information about how people buy, then at some point you're just able to make so much more money with your sales efforts than someone who has to sort of build from scratch from their first dozen customers, two dozen customers, hundred customers, train a model of a female in this town who bought these three things within the same month. What do I sell next? that is going to be an increasingly tough road, assuming that person is also getting better targeted, hyper price calibrated, super sequential offers from some company that has just sold so much of the same thing to her at a gargantuan global scale. It seems like it, in the business context, it sort of adds an additional moat around, we know the folks who are collecting the most data have a moat, but it seems like that moat will become increasingly, increasingly important and prevalent, you know, that maybe there will be less of the fighting chance for these folks who have to start from scratch in some cases.
1: I think the answer is that is almost certainly yes, although the people who are going to win in the, both the medium term and the long term are going to be the ones that figure out the tiny little differences that get you to move just a little bit into a different direction, right? One of the things that we know, and I know this from my own research, and I'm hardly alone in this, is that, you know, it turns out there aren't really six or seven billion people on the planet. There's like twelve. The hard part is figuring out which one of the 12 you are. And it's 12 for this product, but it's a different 12 for this other product. And figuring out which one it is and and what you're going to do is going to be the hard thing. And the the folks who can do that quickly with the least amount of data are ultimately going to have the best chance to take someone away. They have the best chance to sort of win. But you're right. At the end of the day, the more data I have, the more that I know, the more I'm going to be able to do with it and the harder it's going to be to the throne.
0: Yeah, it seems like right now you can come out with a way to potentially dethrone – I'll leverage your word here – would be coming out with just something that's you know so cool and wacky and wild and just different as a product that maybe you can get traction even if you didn't hyper-target the people for that. Mm-hmm. But there's also the chance that if a company like Amazon sells however many shirts they sell in a given four seconds, mm-hmm. uh, that they would know – and they already have their own private label batteries and everything else – that they would maybe know of a cooler design that's more likely to sell than even your neat, you know, boutique niche thing that they can have a spin off representative company come out with. So it seems like even the better ideas, which would maybe be how you would break in otherwise, even the better ideas will potentially be accessible to these folks. I mean, isn't, if I'm not mistaken, Netflix is looking at people's behavior on their platform to determine where they want to spend their budget for movies they want to make. Right. You know, like, ooh, horror in a series that's this long, I think could bank for us based on the markets where we see the opportunity for profit. And that's where they put their dollars. It's not mad men style pitching a cool, catchy idea, smoking Mm. a cigarette. It's like data about behavior that could lead to dollars. So it even seems like the better ideas for new stuff will be in the moat, not just the commodities.
1: So that's an interesting example you bring up because I I can't decide whether I believe you or not. So let me tell you why why I might not believe you. So the problem with data is that there are two problems with data. One is it tends to get you to build a model and then you believe that model and you keep believing that model and everything you do makes you continue to believe that model. In other words, the idea of taking that and figuring out well what's the next new thing is often going to be very difficult because all the data is gonna tell you you should do this old thing, right? How do you pick up the difference between a new trend before someone else figures it out and noise? or something that will fail, right? It's very difficult to do. And one of the reasons it's difficult to do, this is the second problem with data, is we pretend that data is objective. We pretend that, you know, well, I've got all the data and it says this, therefore that's the way it is. But data is not objective. The data you choose to look at is in fact subjective you decide what's important. You've decided to filter out this. You've decided it's dollars. You've decided that, you know, I'm going to divide people up by sex, where they happen to live, zip code. You've decided these things and maybe those are the wrong ways in which you should be looking at people. And so you're going to miss or you potentially could miss the grouping of the world that would give you the hint for what the next thing is. And so maybe in the future, and now I'm totally just making this up, but maybe in the future what you're going to see is you're going to see the cleverness is going to be the people who figure out what are the data features that I should be paying attention to for this little thing
0: isn't that kind of the case i mean you know aren't the coca-colas of the world and the other folks who are doing marketing already aiming to you know have enough overlap of enough layers of information to have systems coax out patterns instead of humans say oh cool show me this geo region and males and this Mm -hmm. age group okay but instead say have a system that can coax out the seemingly prominent But that's challenging because traditionally it's the human who says, okay, I'll pick out what's relevant and I know what goal we're headed for as a business. And these are kind of abstractions Mm -hmm. that the machine is operating without. Maybe the goal is to have the machines be able to slam through enough layers of enough stuff and coax out what it believes given the business's objective are most valuable. It sounds like otherwise there is a chance to get lost. And not just
1: that, but it's the thing that's going to set you up. Not just for, to win the next quarter, but to win the next year and then win the next decade. That's going to be extremely hard. I mean, here I'll just give you a really simple example, which, in fact, I'd call it absurd. Here's the data I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep track of every single atom in your body and what it's doing, what direction it's moving in. It. Heisenberg be damned. That's what I'm going to do. That clearly doesn't tell me anything that's interesting, even though it's all the data in the world. So the more data I'm willing to entertain, the harder it's going to be, more features, the harder it's going to be to figure out which ones are important. There's also another thing that I think people tend to forget, and this maybe gives hope to people who are on the wrong side yeah, of the road, yeah, yeah. is when this business moves, the business influences what's actually happening, right? Sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. So let's say I own a whole bunch of shares of stock and I think, Should I buy, should I sell? Well, the act of being really giant and buying or selling actually changes the price. Right. So the act of Coca-Cola deciding to do this versus some small company deciding to do this that has some kind of cachet because they're young and they or they're small or they're whatever. Now of course Coca-Cola will just buy that company. Yeah. And so and no one will realize Coca-Cola owns it. And so maybe it works out to be the same thing. But the fact that Coke is doing it or Amazon or Google, pick your favorite company or the company you like the least actually has an impact on the outcome. And that is very difficult to figure out because you're in the system.
0: So it may be in some cases, there may be innovation opportunity that's quieter or maybe comes across as more novel because it's done by party X as opposed to if you know Facebook has come down and added this new layer, maybe you're going to act differently if that's the case than if It's happening through some other sort of means or from some other party. Right. Which then gets us to a
1: meta problem, right? Which is now my problem isn't just what do I do next, it's what fake company do I make up so that people think that I'm once you get to the point of trying to influence people, you're no longer just talking about numbers, you're talking about culture and sort of social organizations. And so now you're making social decisions or decisions about culture that in the long term might be the right ones to do for you to win or might not be. And I mean,
0: you know, if it were that easy, then we'd we'll, all, we'll, we'll, all be multi-billionaires. We'll need some AGI to crack that nut. Any closing thoughts on where you think the domain of influence will have the greatest impact in, let's say, the next half decade where these notions of guiding someone's experience and encouraging action, the particular fields in which you just think this is going to make the biggest pop for the difference in you know profitability or lack thereof growth or lack thereof for business?
1: If you take the, the examples of games seriously, you have to realize very quickly that games are just a metaphor for ecosystems I want to spend time in. And if you think about the kinds of things we've talked about, it's games I want to play again and again. So it's ecosystems I want to live in again and again, and I want to keep exploring. So I think where the biggest opportunity for influence really is, where these things are going to matter, are going to be for those businesses where you create an ecosystem where people feel like they're a part of it and they want to continue to be a part of it. And it's not much different from just the idea of brand and why I pick Coke over Pepsi or whatever, why I pick one thing over the other that otherwise should be similar. Those are going to be the places where you're going to have the most influence. And frankly, it seems to me in the social connected world that
0: we're in, we're rapidly moving to a place where everyone is in that business, whether they want to be or not. This platform world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where everything's already instrumented to track, as you had put it, you know, the myriad things you do in a given 10 seconds. Or if you spend a day on the platform, that's one more data point that we can use to optimize for you and for everybody else. That's the space where, not surprisingly, those are the giants of the day, aren't they?
1: And so long as you can keep people on your platform and you can get them to move in one direction or another without being too blatant about it so that they don't feel
0: as if they're being pushed you're going to win. Maybe that closing comment on your part that sort of everybody's moving to that business in some way, shape, or form would be a strategic food for thought for the business folks tuned in. That's all we have for time, Charles. Thank you for sharing your insights on AI and industry.
1: Thanks for having me. Enjoyed every minute.
0: That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI in Industry is produced by Tech Emergence and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Figella. This is AI in Industry, and we'll catch you next week.